Welcome into episode 19 of the Landscape Photography Show. And you know that feeling when you talk to an old friend after a long time of like not speaking or catching up? That's kind of how I felt when I talked to Kurt Budliger, who's going to be on the podcast today. And we talked about a variety of topics, not only like kind of what he's been going through the past, I don't know, it's been like four or five years, I guess, since we really talked and caught up on photography. But a lot of topics like adding a drone to his photography and getting different perspectives using drones. We even got into things like What are regulations on workshops? What are regulations are drones? Should those be enforced more or should there be more regulations on workshops? We even got into things like what's the difference in Vermont versus New Hampshire landscapes and how those things look and also his approach to landscape photography versus some other things like a shoot that he did for Ski Vermont. So let's get right into this episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, we're joined today by Kurt Budliger. Kurt and I have talked on my previous podcast and it's been a while, gosh, like a few years now since we've actually caught up and we just spent a few minutes chatting before I hit the record button on this podcast. But Kurt, why don't you kind of give us a background on what you've been doing the last few years uh, and maybe even a little bit in, in how you got interested in photography and And some of the things that really inspired you about landscape photography. Oh, well, let's see. As I mentioned uh, before you hit record, um, today is one of those monumental birthdays. So I was reflecting on uh, turning 50 and realizing that uh, I've now been a photographer for, you know, more than half my life. The big uh, 5-0. The big 5-0, man. Exactly. It's the new 30, I hear. I hear um, it is. Yeah, totally. That's what <laughs> Us Weekly says anyways. <laughs> Good. Excellent. <laughs> um, no, I mean, my path to photography was a pretty natural and fun path. I mean, I was uh, I studied natural resources in undergrad and was really into being outdoors and biking and hiking and uh, exploring. And um, as an outdoor and environmental educator uh, and coming from a family of educators, my father thought it would be good for me to have a camera to just sort of document, you know, natural history and ecology and things like that to use in, in talks. And so that was my graduation gift from college. And, you know, as soon as I got this thing, I just fell in love with it. Like just the whole, the, everything about it. I liked the way it felt in my hand. I loved, you know, loading film into it. I loved the sounds that it made. I loved looking through the viewfinder and framing you know, photographs. So I, I really just sort of jumped in, um, you know, both feet. Um, and then I spent a few years, you know, working outdoor ed and then got into a career as a science teacher and all the while, you know, still really loving photography, specifically nature and landscape photography. And so as a teacher, uh, before my wife and I had kids, you know, we would get, you know, nice, you know, chunks of time during the year. And then of course, during the summertime, 
and uh, we both love to travel and hike and backpack and explore. And, and um, so I would, you know, I would bring the camera along with me everywhere I went and I would shoot film and had this sort of idea of, you know, becoming a professional nature photographer. And, you know, of course this was, you know, in the mid going into like late nineties, early two thousand. So, you know, pre sort of digital SLRs or at least really good ones. Uh, so, you know, developing, trying to develop a stock archive of slides and, and then all of a sudden, you know, that just blew up with, with digital. And Uh then, um, you know, I still had that in, in the back of my mind. And then when we started a family, um, I decided to leave my teaching job and just sort of be a stay-at-home dad and try to get a photo business going um, on the side to sort of make up for some of that that lost income. And that was 15 years ago. And so my career as a photographer has really been pretty diverse. I've done everything from, you know, newspaper reportage and sports photography, you know, editorial work, um, outdoor lifestyle, uh, some commercial stuff do a lot of stuff for um, nonprofits, uh, mostly conservation organizations uh, and helping them with, with marketing collateral or editorial imagery. Um, And then I stayed true to my sort of roots as an educator. And uh, the last probably, I don't know, six to eight years or so um, has really been uh, pretty focused on, on leading workshops and, and tours. What, I mean, was there like a stigma when you told people you were going to be a stay at home dad, not only try to start your photo business, was there like this stigma of like stay at home dad, you know? Um, I don't, I don't know that I really encountered too much of that. Um, were you hanging with a pretty progressive crowd? Yeah. I mean, I live in uh, sort of North central Vermont and, uh, so it's not an uncommon occurrence to see, you know, as many dads at the, at the, the play group, you know, uh, at the elementary school or at the playground or whatever. Um, so yeah. And most of my friends here, uh, are educators or are in education. And so as we were sort of all starting to have kids around the same time, um, you know, it was probably almost a, maybe not a 50, 50 split, but there were a lot of guys that decided to take big chunks of time off from work. And, they weren't, you know, these weren't people who had like these like high power, you know, types of jobs like in finance or law and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I never really I never really felt that. In fact, you know, for me, it was really pretty awesome um, because I don't know that I would have gotten that opportunity to really bond with both my kids as much as I did um, had that not been the case. Now. When we were setting up a, a time to talk, um, you had to take advantage of the snow that was coming in and you did a shoot for Ski Vermont. Um, I was just curious, like when you said that, I immediately went to what's the what's the difference in creative approach there for something like a Ski Vermont shoot versus fly fishing versus like your classic landscape shot? You know, it's it's really pretty similar. Um, I mean, as, as photographers, we're, we we tell stories, right? And so we look for ways to make photographs that, you know, capture the essence of a moment, 
that illustrate, you know, concepts um, that illustrate uh, emotions um, and tell stories. So for me, it's very, very similar. Um, you know, most of my outdoor photography that's not landscape, whether it's fly fishing or, you know, shooting some skiing or, or kayaking or mountain biking, or whatever it might be, um, you know, I may have some ideas about how I want to shoot something or, or maybe like a particular aesthetic that I want to capture, but um, it's still, you know, it's still outdoor photography. It's not studio photography. So, you know, as much as you can, you try to plan, you know, like, oh, well, there's fresh snow, so that's going to make for better ski shots. Um, so that's when you go out, but you still can't control the light. Um, you know, there's there's only so much that you can actually you know, orchestrate. Um, so it's really very similar. You, you're, you're, you know, getting on location, looking for um, nice backgrounds, looking for interesting angles, places where there's nice light, um, you know, skiing with somebody who's a good skier and, you know, giving them some direction uh, based on the background that you want or the type of action that you want to capture. Um, and then just sort of letting it rip. And the nice thing about digital photography is that you can evaluate you know, you can evaluate the shots and, you know, take another crack at it if you need to. Which one for you is, is like more peaceful or, or therapeutic? Landscape versus like outdoor lifestyle? Yeah. Oh, I think landscape because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not having to worry about another person mm. giving someone else, you know, any kind of direction. Um, and it's more, it's more me um, having the experience, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us landscape photographers got into landscape photography primarily because we enjoy the experience of being outdoors and of witnessing, you know, the incredible, the incredible displays of light and atmosphere that, that mother nature, you know, can, can create. So, um, it's nice to be, you know, just with a camera in nature, uh, kind of, you know, feeling it, experiencing it and, and photographing it, um, you know, on your own, because it's a very personal experience. Yeah. And, and you being in Vermont, I was curious to know what, it, what does Vermont mean to you and your landscape photography? Cause not, not everybody, when you say like, well, where do you want to go photograph? They always say, you know, Colorado, Utah, even things like Iceland, Namibia, places like that. But no one really says, you know, I'm going to Vermont, man. <laughs> no, they hardly ever do. I mean, with the exception of maybe like the first two weeks in October. Yeah. Um, you know, that's when sort the of leafers. And, yeah, exactly. When Vermont and the rest of New England sort of gets to shine. Um, you know, Vermont is a really kind of interesting and special place. Uh, first of all, it's small and it's very intimate and it's not exactly a grand landscape, you know, Mecca. Um, although there are opportunities and places to photograph grand landscapes here. Um, but for me, it's very much about that intimacy. Um, you know, I live in the woods um, I live about as the crow flies seven miles, maybe even less six miles from the state capital in the capital city of Montpelier. Mm -hmm. When I say city, I mean, people will laugh like there are 8,000 residents, but you know, it's the capital 
but I live on a dirt road on 12 acres and literally in the woods. Um, so the fact that you can, you know, that you can be out in nature, you know, very, very quickly or be in town relatively quickly to me is amazing. Like well, I lived on the front range in Colorado for when I went to college and, you know, if we wanted to go to the mountains, I mean, there were foothills relatively close by, but, you know, we had to drive 45 minutes or more, uh, and to get really up into the mountains, you had to drive a couple of hours. Whereas here, you know, I can be out my door and skiing, you know, in state forest land, literally, you know, from my door. So the intimacy of it is really what I love. And the other thing about that, the other thing about it that I love is that, you know, you have to, you kind of have to work for photographs here. Um, and, and I'm sure you experienced this too, living in the Southeast, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's pretty easy. I don't want to say it's easy, but you know, shooting the grand landscape out West is not that difficult. It's know? easy. I'll, I'll say yeah, it for you. It's, okay. Thanks. I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to be my, my, 2020 is my year of positivity. So I'm trying not to disparage anyone (laughs) or or anything, but you know, there are sayings like, you know, if you can ski the East, you can ski the West. And I kind of feel like if you can photograph the landscape in the Northeast, um, you know, you can pretty much do it anywhere. Um, You really have to kind of work for it um, and search out compositions because they don't just jump out at you. Yeah. Has that, has that given you an upper hand? Do you feel like in creativity? I don't know if it's giving me an upper hand. I think it's definitely informed the way I, the way I approach photography. Um, you know, I sort of, when I was learning photography, um, it's funny, like I, you know, for years I would almost always, almost only photograph on like overcast days, you know, shooting mm-hmm. Velvia and, you know, very little dynamic range in the film and, and mostly photographing intimate landscapes. I mean, that's what I've, that's that's how I learned to become a photographer. It's really only been, you know, with the age of, of digital photography, digital SLRs and, um, you know, and wider angle lenses, you know, that, that came around in the sort of early mid two thousands, um, that I started shooting sort of that, that more grand landscape stuff. Do you see yourself as like an ambassador to Vermont and the East Coast as a whole? Um, I don't, I don't know that I've ever really thought about it like that. I mean, I take pride in being from Vermont. I think most Vermonters do. Um, it's a, it's a pretty unique and interesting place. And um, you know, if I guess, yeah, you know, I guess if I'm an ambassador for Vermont, that's that's pretty cool. Don't, don't you, what's like the state motto of Vermont? Isn't it, don't you have uh, something like on your license plates that's, that's uh, unique? I don't think so. It's the Green Mountain State. I, you might be thinking in New Hampshire, live free or die. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I always mix up the two. I can never pick them out on a map. I don't know. They're so different from one another. Really? really? Kind of a, oh my God, they're totally different. How? Oh, so much. They're so different in so many ways. It's amazing. Like when you look at them on the map there, it's almost like they're the, they're yin and yang to each other, you know? Um, ah, man. And you can tell right away when you cross the river into New Hampshire, uh, that you're not in Vermont anymore. It's really weird. Like the geology is completely different. Uh huh. The green mountains are completely different than the white mountains. White mountains are much bigger, more dramatic, more rugged, um, taller, 
Um, Green Mountains are kind of a little bit more worn down by glaciation and um, different, completely different rock, which is bizarre because as the crow flies from here to Mount Washington is probably 100 miles. I mean, I can see it uh, from the tops of our mountains on a clear day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Vermont, I mean, New Hampshire, Vermont's a little bit more sort of bucolic in the traditional sense of like, you know, rolling hills and farms. Um, uh, it's definitely a lot more progressive uh, politically. New Hampshire's far more um, uh, conservative. Um, yeah, they're very different from one another. That's very okay. Wait, Vermont's on the left. Yeah, Vermont's okay. on the west. Yep. Okay, got it. All right. So you recently added a drone to your photo bag, and and I want. I was actually reading uh, your article on some of your favorite photos from 2019, and you said. I also added a new tool to my photo kit, a DJI Mavic Pro 2. I'd been toying with the idea of purchasing a drone for some time, but in late 2019, I finally pulled the trigger. When you took it out of the bag and sent it up in the air for the first time, what was your mind doing, like seeing that perspective? Oh, it was pretty cool. I was worried, you know, I'm still sort of like torn a little bit um about using it because you know there it does have an impact i mean on anyone that's around you obviously mm-hmm. um in in the dji mag 2 it's pretty quiet but it's still you know it sounds like an annoying mosquito mm-hmm. um so i still am sort of torn a little bit uh about using it but the perspective is really really cool and you know around here where i live you know there are a lot of oppor- there are a lot of places where if you could just get up you know, 30, 40, 50 feet, um, and out over a field, you know, rather than having to shoot from the road, let's say, um, you know, you can get some really interesting perspectives, but, um, you know, I've been pretty inspired by a a bunch of the, the drone work that I've seen from folks, um, you know, out West and like the Badlands and stuff like the, you know, the stuff that David Thompson's been doing and, and Alex Noriega. And, um, and so I, you know, I thought, well, you know, what is, what's it going to look like in the, in the Northeast, you know? Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I finally pulled the trigger. It's a lot of fun. I was a little apprehensive at first because, uh, I was not like a gamer kid. Yeah. Uh, I mean like, you know, like when I was a kid, it was like Atari, the original one. Um, yeah. Like pong. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I was like, Oh, am I going to be able to control this thing and fly this thing? And it was really, I watched a couple of YouTube videos and as soon as I put it up, I'm like, Oh, this is pretty easy. This is pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think, was that your cat? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All. Okay. Here's my, here's my thing is a theory. All landscape photographers. Well, I don't want to say all 75% I'll say are cat people. (laughs) <laughs> is that right okay i think so there i think are, so i actually know quite a few uh cat or uh, landscape photographers that are cat people i don't know that i would describe myself as a cat person but um we don't have a dog so i guess that i guess i'm a cat person by default you're a cat person exactly is there something to say about drones and regulations on having that impact whether it be noise pollution or like disturbing people's peace 
in nature. Do you think with that, that regulations are going to be, I don't want to say harsher, but maybe a little bit more strict? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you already can't fly, you know, in any national park, um, you know, without a special use permit, um, which I think is a good thing because with the number of people visiting, you know, national parks and the popularity of drones, I think there'd be, you know, just hundreds of them in the air all over the place. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I could see that happening. I mean, my last trip to Iceland, um, I noticed, you know, many more, you know, do not fly drone signs in places, uh, in popular places around Iceland. Whereas, you know, the previous year or two, there hadn't been any. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's coming. I mean, some people, you know, it's some people love them, don't mind them. You know, other people uh, just have a real visceral reaction to them when they hear them or see them. You know, it's like if they had a shotgun, they'd shoot the thing out of the air if they could. It's illegal. To shoot them out of the air? Yeah. I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> Very illegal. Um, how do you weigh that, though? When you're in the field and you say, man, this would look great, you know, 20, 30 feet off the ground, maybe like a bird's eye view perspective. How do you weigh that impact where you are, even if it is legal to fly? Are there steps you go through in your mind that say, well, you know, if I do this, then it'll impact this way? Absolutely. Um, I mean, first and foremost, like, just as far as like the human impact on people's enjoyment of, of their surroundings. I mean, if there are any people around, um, I, I will either not fly or if I'm just like dying to do it, you know, I'll ask everyone, you know, Hey, is this, you know, would you mind if I did this or here's what I'd like to do? And, you know, most of the time people are, are cool with it, but if anyone even just sort of hesitates, I just won't do it because I don't, you know, I don't need to do it. And I certainly don't want to have a negative, uh, impact on anyone else's enjoyment of the outdoors. Um, you know, and if I think that there's any kind of potential for, you know, an environmental impact, I, I just won't do it. Hey guys, I just wanted to pause real quick to talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's visualwilderness.com. Visual Wilderness is a website that you can go to to find tons of resources. I mean like hours of video resources and courses on how you can improve and get better at landscape photography. You can get my courses right now for a limited time for 33% off if you use the code david 33 during checkout you can find the links to all of that information how to get to my courses how to get to their uh, membership subscriptions right now you can go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash kurt and you can go there and find all that information again david 33 during checkout for 33 percent off my courses for a limited time but let's get back to the episode Let's switch gears. Um, you have a teaching background in yes. education. You also lead a pretty significant amount of photo workshops throughout the year, which people can find if they go to the show notes for this episode. I'll link over to all your workshops there. Um, does your background in education 
help you lead workshops? Like, are you pulling from what you learned in those years to apply to what you're doing in the field? Absolutely. No question. Yeah. I mean, and before I was a public school teacher, I was an outdoor and environmental educator and interpretive naturalist. And when I was in college, I used to guide trips in the Adirondacks uh, through a camp. So, I mean, for almost my entire adult life, um, I've been, you know, leading groups of people in the outdoors and, um, and been an educator. So it absolutely does. I mean, I don't see how it couldn't. What's your favorite part about leading the workshops? I love, I love seeing something, not no pun intended, but something click, you know, uh, with someone, um, you know, I love helping people experience, have an, first of all, have an amazing experience outdoors, you know, in a place that they might not otherwise be or experience. And then secondly, um, helping someone to sort of, you know, to capture something that they're excited about or to refine their vision or to get over some technical hurdle uh, that they may may be having and to just see that, you know, just to see them sort of light up um, and get excited uh, about what they're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's contagious and it's super rewarding. With workshops, like we talked about drone regulations and, and maybe those being a little bit more strict in the coming years or kind of seeing that on the horizon as an obvious step with, with the things going on like right now in national parks or in public lands where, you know, you have movements set up right now, like nature first and and protecting and leave no trace, things like that. Do you see workshop regulations being more strict like drone regulations might be? Uh, I mean, I, I definitely, <clears throat> I could see that happening. I mean, I'm sure you heard about and and your listeners ha- did you know the sort of um on again off again uh proposed tripod regulations in zion i mean that's mm-hmm. just one one example of the kinds of things that that potentially could happen um you know, can you explain that for those who who haven't heard well i actually don't know that i know the the um so i don't want to um I don't want to sort of give out any false information, but mm-hmm. my recollection is, and this was a couple of years ago, that there was that they had proposed um, a no tripod rule for workshop groups. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was park wide or if it just applied to the Narrows, um, the Virgin River Narrows. And then there was a lot of pushback um, from the photo community. And, and then I think they may have rescinded or revised those rules. So I actually don't know what, the current rules are, I think you are allowed to use tripods on a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't, so I don't, I don't lead a, a workshop in Zion, so I'm not exactly sure, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's coming. I mean, you know, there are so many more people traveling now. I mean, there are just more people everywhere and, um, and there are more people traveling and people want to visit the national parks and for good reason. I mean, they are one of the best things about our country and, I think, unfortunately, part of the problem is that um, there's, there's this unfortunate circumstance that we're in, in which the you know funding for national parks has never recovered from you know the Bush the Bush cuts from mm-hmm. you know from uh, the Bush administration. Right. At, yet, at the same time, 
you know, park visitation is, you know, breaking records almost every year. So, you know, there's less funding, uh, infrastructure is, you know, not being maintained, park staffing is not at optimal levels. And so, you know, you sort of have this perfect storm. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised. Um, although I will say this, I don't, I don't, I think the vast majority of workshops are behaving in a very responsible way. And they're working with groups of people who are really interested in, you know, preserving these places and experiencing them um, in a responsible way. Um, I think the majority, the vast majority of, of negative impact in on our public lands is, is not from, you know, photography workshops. Mm-hmm. It's it's from the general public. I mean, it's just it's just a numbers thing, and folks that might not be as well versed or educated in leave no trace or low impact um, travel and and hiking and things like that that are having the biggest impact. Would you like to see regulations be more strict? For workshops or just yeah. in general? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I want to see them be more strict. I think what I would like to see is, is a more um, uh, standardized sort of um, – procedure and set of guidelines for uh, the commercial use authorization, um, which is the permit that you have to get to operate a workshop in a national park. And right now you have to do it, you know, on an individual park basis through, you know, so every park has slightly different uh, requirements. Uh, some, most of them all have very similar requirements, but there are, you know, differences from park to park and there are different fees from park to park. And, it's kind of a pain in the neck, you know, you know, one park wants this, another park wants that, you know, one park wants you to do a end of the season report, you know, and pay a resource recovery fee, another park doesn't. And so it'd be nice if there was a little bit more standardized standardization to it. Um, And then, you know, maybe you don't, you don't have like, you know, one hand not knowing what the other hand is doing, perhaps. A global blanket statement, you mean? Yeah, it was just a set of procedures uh-huh. um, and processes that are that are, you know, standardized across the entire system. And then obviously, there you know, each park is unique, so there are certain you know certain things about each park that you might need to do that are a little bit different. Um, but I think that would go a long way uh, to sort of streamlining the process, and then and then perhaps there's more resources then that could be put into, you know, ensuring that, that groups are, you know, are having as little impact as possible. But I mean, for the most part, I will say that, you know, at least the workshops that, that I've encountered in the field, uh, you know, are, are great people and they're, you know, they're treading as lightly as, as possible and um, probably having less impact on the resource than the average you know, the average public, I mean, the problem, the problem, the problem you run into is when there is a particular place that has become or spot that has, that may be off the beaten path a little bit that has become popularized online that then everybody wants to go to. Then for sure, workshop groups could, can have an impact because, you know, maybe that, that spot can't handle a lot of foot traffic over the course of, you know, a season or something like that, but it's getting a lot of foot traffic. 
um, whereas the general public might not even know where it is. Do you think, I mean, just thinking like off the top of my head here, your background in education, is there a way of, of teaching the public about these places um, instead of making stricter regulations? Well, the, yeah. I mean, the thing with stricter regulations is that, I mean, the re- regulation is only as good as your ability to enforce it. Sure. And so, you know, the, the, the parks, there isn't just, there isn't the park staff to even enforce the regulations that are on the books. So I, as far as educating the public, I mean, I was an, I was an environmental educator, uh, very idealistic and, you know, thought I was going to, you know, save the world in, you know, 1989. And, <laughs> you, know, and, you haven't done and, that yet? No. And, and, you know, as I get older, I get more cynical. I mean, I really have little, this is going to sound terrible, but I, I have very little hope that that humanities has the capacity to actually live sustainably on this planet. I just don't see it happening. I have in the, in the time that I've been an adult, I just, I don't see really much progress. So on that pessimistic note, you're a positivity. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're positivity. Okay. Let's talk about print sales. Staying on positivity. How, positive is that for your photography business like what what good do you see coming out of print sales i i actually don't i don't emphasize it that much I, it's really not a, no it's not a big piece of my um of my income puzzle at the moment it hasn't been for a number of years why is that um, um i don't know i mean i i haven't devoted a ton of time, you know, to, you know, marketing, marketing for print sales. Um, I, for, for a while I, I would, I had, a, I, you know, I had work in some, you know, galleries and things like that in Vermont and, um, you know, gallery commissions are so high and it just wasn't selling enough to really justify having it there. Um, and, you know, trying to find the right price point in the, in the market here, it's pretty small. I mean, we're our our entire state population is like not even barely seven hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't really spent a lot of time or found much success in like marketing it, like in a you know physically here, like in in uh, craft galleries and shops and things like that. Um, and then you know I haven't I haven't put a lot of time or effort into selling prints online, you know, every year it's one of my sort of goals, you know, like, oh, okay, to try to, you know, try to increase revenue, uh, you know, in the arena of, of online print sales. Um, but I, I, I sadly haven't devoted a lot of time to it. So it, right now it's, it has not been and is not a, a really big piece of the puzzle for me. Do you see I it? Would, as- I would like it to be. Sure. Sure. And I was like, do you see it as a, like a goal for almost every landscape photographer to have their images in somebody's home. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, for any photographer that's printed their work and, and, you know, and displays it on the wall. I mean, that's like, that's to me, that's like the, that's the, that's the, the final sort of, you know, presentation of the image, um, you know, seeing it big and seeing it on a wall that's nicely lit and, for someone to enjoy, 
that's that's fantastic. I mean, I I love making prints. I love viewing prints. I love you know handling prints. Um, yeah, I think it is. It's fan- it's it's awesome. Do you think photographers now, though, with print sales being so low currently, I feel like for the majority of people, and education or, or just marketing on social media being so high, do you think people are maybe losing touch and editing their images for an actual print and instead of editing that for screen time? Well, I mean, the vast majority of, of folks don't print their work. So I don't even know that they know how to edit for print. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, yeah, I think the, I think most, most of the editing and sort of, uh, the aesthetic of, of processing landscape photography that looks great online, you know, probably doesn't translate super well to, to print unless it's in, you know, unless the print is, unless you can really control how the print is viewed and and lit. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that transition in your own images? I mean, even starting out like way back in film moving into digital, did you see a transition in editing style for the print versus kind of like what you're doing now with, uh, workshops, uh, a little bit of social media here and there, things like that. Well, I mean, my editing style, I think has been pretty consistent. I, I actually, truth be known, um, I, I don't like processing that much. Same. I know there are some folks that really love it and that's cool. And I, it's not that I don't like it. I just, it's not my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, in my personal aesthetic, um, for my work, I think has stayed, pr- pr- I mean, it's evolved for sure, but I think it's, I try, I've tried to stay pretty true to sort of what I was used to seeing, you know, from transparency film you know, like that particular like color palette and contrast and things like that. Um, I mean, it's certainly evolved, like, don't get me wrong. Um, but as far as like processing for print, you know, like it's so much better now. I mean, I would never in a million years want to go back to shooting film. Like really? Oh God, no, No (laughs) no way. Are you kidding me? Like the dynamic range alone in the digital you know, cameras that we have now is just like, I, I can't even think of what it would be like to shoot Fuji Velvia with like five stops of dynamic range again. Mm-hmm. Like no way. I mean, the, the dynamic range alone in the sensors uh, has completely changed the way I shoot for sure. Um, and then as a result, changed the way I process. I mean, processing from a digital raw file versus a, a scan of a transparency is uh it's it's like night and day um so much more latitude and flexibility and so much more image quality i mean just out of the nikon d850 alone the the native print size if you didn't upsize it at all is like 20 by 30 inches i mean that's huge so i i guess yeah it has changed the way i process but again you know i don't i don't print a ton so what do you see as the driving force behind your images? Like you just talked a lot about the technical side of camera technology. You've talked about like environmental impact and being a, a, 
environmental educator, are any of those things like the main driving force for you? Um, well, yes and no. I, I mean, I have always been, I've always loved nature. I just always have. I grew up, you know, in the woods as a kid. I spent, you know, summers, you know, going to camps and backpacking trips and canoe trips and went camping a ton. And, you know, just that has just been who I am for my entire life. So if I didn't take photographs, I would still be doing all of those activities. Mm-hmm. You know, I would still, I would still fly fish. I would hike, I would bike, I would do all that stuff. So for me, the, the photography piece of it, the motivation behind taking a picture is a, I like the, I love the process. I love the process of distilling an image of taking of, of, of having an experience that is maybe ephemeral um, with regard to like the light and weather and atmosphere and things like and the conditions and, 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 and composing an image and creating an image. I love, I just love that process. Um, <clears throat> so for me, there's not any more motivation behind making an image. Like I'm not making an image thinking all the while, at least most of the time, thinking all the while, like, oh, I'm going to do this with this, or this image is going to be used for X, you know, uh, purpose and have, and have this effect hopefully on whatever I I'm just making images that make me happy. Um, and that, uh, and that sort of illustrate like, you know, my experience in, in, you know, in the environment. And then I, then I figure out what to do with them afterward i mean that's if i'm just shooting for myself so it's mostly just so it's mostly it's a selfish endeavor really i mean it's a it's a personal selfish endeavor and then at some point you know i probably will share the images whether it's online or with you know family friends in a print in an exhibition you know potentially you know licensed or 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 you know donated to a conservation organization or something like that that is going to be you know that can use that image to then further the the cause of conservation and and preservation of the environment because i still even though i'm kind of a cynical guy with regard to how i feel like things are going i i'm not giving up on it um and i'm still going to try to influence as many people as i can along the way to care about this stuff talk about just for a second your work with one percent for the planet because i don't see a lot of people working with that in particular? Um, 1% for the planet, for folks that don't know, is an organization that was founded by um, Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia Clothing and Black Diamond Equipment. Um, And uh, another guy whose name I can't think of at the moment, who's owned a fly shop in Montana. It'll come to me. But anyway, the two of them decided a number of years ago, at least, let's see, it's got to be, probably six, at least 16 years ago. I joined in 2005, I think. Um, and it was fairly new then, but so they decided to create an organization of like-minded businesses that all agreed to donate 1% of their gross proceeds annually to an environmental, uh, or conservation organization of their choice that was doing work, you know, good work in conservation and preservation. So they started this thing. And they both committed to doing it. And it has grown 
uh, it's huge now. I mean, there are, t- I mean, there are, I mean, New Belgian Brewery is a, is a member, Sugarbush Ski Resort, you know, here in Vermont is a member. These are Jack Johnson, the musician, you know, these, those are some of the more high profile ones. Um, but it, you know, so it's all businesses, no matter how big, all agree to donate 1% of their proceeds. And, you know, for me, it, it's, you know, it's an easy thing to do. Um, you know, at the end of the year, I calculate what 1% of my gross is. And uh, I'm passionate about fly fishing and cold water conservation and have been an active member and I'm a board member of my local chapter of Trout Unlimited. And so, uh, and have been a founding member and acting uh, director of a youth fly fishing camp here in Vermont, uh, in the Northeast Kingdom. And so, you know, that's, that's where I, that's where I give my money. Um, and then I know that that donation each year goes toward, you know, their operating budgets and, and doing the, the good work that they do. Um, so for me, it's, it's a, it's a super easy thing to do. And it's an organization that is doing amazing work. He's Kurt Budliger, a Vermont native, uh, ambassador for positivity, I guess this year, (laughs) birthday boy. Um, happy birthday, man. Thanks for coming on and and talking photography. Hey, appreciate it. Appreciate it, David. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you're resurrecting the podcast. Um, and thanks for inviting me.